My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Welcome to to Sunday morning at sunrise as each week I get the opportunity to do this. I'm sitting in an empty room and and I wish you were here and yet you are here and that's just great that we get to do this. If you are a guest with us today, I'm Shane, one of the pastors here and it's just my delight to be able to lead the next part of our worship gathering together as we continue in our teaching series. We're calling Witnesses, walking through this book of Acts and Beginning this Sunday and going through the end of May, which is where, which will conclude this book. We're in the last third, and some scholars call this third the sufferings of Paul, because we'll see Paul have faced several hostile audiences and, and also in, in several life-threatening situations. And so as we look at this last section, basically one overarching theme to this last third of the book And that theme is that God brings good out of evil and shows the power of the gospel through it. God brings good out of evil and shows the power of the gospel through it. And so over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to take basically different aspects of looking at Paul as that theme plays out in him and through him. And today what I want to do is in particular take a look at Paul's courage. Because Paul shows remarkable courage as he faces these hostile audiences, as he faces these life-threatening situations. And we love stories of courage, don't we? I mean, there's just something about them. I mean, right now in the midst of this coronavirus season, we're hearing stories of courage all over the globe from China to Spain to New York City to right here in our own backyard, people stepping into the situation with courage and and it inspires us especially these frontline medical workers and and maybe you have the same reaction I do when you hear a story of courage Uh, on the one hand your your heart just goes out with admiration you feel the sense of awe and the sense of gratitude and but then there's another part of me and again maybe you as well that asks yourself the question would I have the courage to do that Because the reality of courage is you don't know that you have it until you're in a a place where you need it. You don't know whether you have it until you're in a place where you need it. And so what I want to do in this today is I want to take a look at Paul's courage. And I want to look for clues as to how he acted with that kind of courage and how we might act with courage as well. And so I'm going to pick up Paul's story as he returns to Jerusalem. It's a story that begins in Acts chapter 21, verse 15. It says, after this, we packed up our things and left for Jerusalem. You notice the word we there. This is Luke, the writer of the story. And this is the group of, that are going there with Paul. He said, some believers... 
from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Nason, a man originally from Cyprus and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James, and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. After hearing this, they praised God. And then they said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. Now here Paul as he returns to Jerusalem steps right back into a fire that's been simmering. Uh, We first encountered this fire back in Acts chapter 12. We looked at it in detail in Acts chapter 15. It was as these Gentile believers were being molded into the church where there's this cultural conflict between Jewish believers who had practiced following this God of Abraham for so many decades and generations. They had these cultural practices that the Gentiles now, were they required for them or is hope in Jesus enough? And, and if you recall, maybe you're here, uh, when, we, when we walked through Acts chapter 15, we saw how these leaders in Jerusalem, they faced a generational challenge with this topic. This, this trying to meld together of Jew and Gentile was a generational challenge. It wasn't something they just solved back in Acts chapter 15. No, they were still working on it, and they're working on it here in Acts chapter 21. Well, in the next sept- several verses, which I'm not going uh, to read, I invite you to read that on your own, uh, but basically you see the leaders, they devise a plan that involved Paul humbling himself and demonstrating his commitment to Jewish cultural practices. Now, Paul on his own, was not beholden anymore, any longer to those Jewish cultural practices. But he willingly and gladly embraced the, the instruction from these leaders in Jerusalem uh, because that's the kind of guy he was. In fact, we can learn what motivated Paul by looking to a letter he wrote to a church in Corinthians. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul's motivation. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to that law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. Paul's constant motivation, no matter his circumstances, was to bring people to Jesus. So Paul, in the story in Acts chapter 21, follows through with the leader's plan. But let's just say it didn't go so well. There were people there that saw him and they spread rumors and those rumors went through Jerusalem like like wildfire and a rage-filled mob fueled by panic came after Paul and, and they started beating him and very nearly killed him. That's what panic does. And so whether we're talking about a rumor-filled raging mob in the first century Jerusalem or we're talking about responding to the coronavirus in 2020, panic is an emotional response hardwired into us. It's part of God's design, his his way that self-protected system that we have. So before I go on, in order for us to understand what's going on here as well as what's going on in the world around us, I just want to talk a little bit about panic. 
First of all, we need to know that panic, it's an automatic response that originates in the lower regions of your brain. Uh, and it's a, it's a, that part of your brain is the same part of your brain that keeps your heart beating and your lungs filling with air. It's really important, but it's an automatic part. And this par- lower part of your brain also senses danger. And when it does, it lets your body know and it sends your body into what is often called fight, flight, or freeze mode. And it's all automatic. The second thing we need to know is that it's powerful. Your brain sends signals to your body that unleashes these chemicals and actually changes the makeup of your body so that you can act with speed and strength for a short period of time in order to survive whatever the danger is. It's powerful. Thirdly, panic is irrational. It's, it's a non-thinking, body-centered response that actually turns off access to your thinking part of your brain. So that the thinking part of the brain doesn't get in the body's way as it, as it responds to this real or perceived danger. So panic, it's automatic, it's powerful, it's irrational, and, and it's also very good. It is good that our bodies have this designed into us when we need it. Uh, For example, uh, when you're in your car and you're driving at a pretty good clip and the car in front of you comes to a complete stop, if you had to think about your response before you actually decided what you were going to do, you'd be having a face-to-face meeting or, you know, with that car and you could be hurt and you could actually get killed. So isn't it good that God designed your body to act automatically without you requiring to think in that situation? So panic is automatic, it's powerful, it's irrational. What you also need to know about panic is it is contagious. Panic can run through an individual or through a crowd or through an entire country quickly, more quickly than even the most contagious virus. It's what's fueling the crowd that came after Paul and it's currently driving a great deal of our reaction to the coronavirus. Some cultural commentators have rightly talked about two dangerous contagions that are flowing through this country and around the world. The contagion known as the coronavirus and the contagion of panic. Panic selling led to the stock markets taking a dive. Panic buying led to what I guess for the rest of the history we'll know as the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. You see, logic says that you... If you're going to invest in the stock market, you take the long view. Logic says toilet paper has nothing to do with with responding to a contagion. But my friends, panic eats logic for lunch. So Paul faced a very violent and dangerous situation. This panicked mob was so violent that he had to be physically carried away by the soldiers. But next we see Paul do something that showed remarkable courage. And that's where I want to focus our attention today, again, so that we can see how Paul responded and, how, and we might maybe get some clues how we might respond similarly. So I want to pick up the story in verse 37 of chapter 21. It says, as Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, this is the commander of the Roman troops that had Paul, may I have a word with you? And the the commander responded, do you know Greek? And he was surprised. He says, aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? 
No, Paul replied, I am a Jew and a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is an important city. Please let me talk to these people. The commander agreed, so Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd and he addressed them in their own language, Aramaic. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Now, now there's more going on in this story than, than immediately meets the eye. In fact, in fact, the English translation of this passage hides a couple of these things. And so I just want to highlight them. Like I said, Paul had been beaten and, and his life was hanging by a thread because this large panic-fueled crowd could still overwhelm this small group of soldiers. But Paul responded with courage. First, he spoke up to the Roman commander, and that may not sound like much, but in that day and age, to speak to a Roman commander, a Roman centurion, could lead, just speaking up to him, could lead to a beating or even death. And so that took courage. And what's not clear in the English translation, but is important for us to understand, is that Paul addressed the Roman commander in formal, courteous Greek. That's why the commander was surprised, because it revealed Paul to be a member of a, of a higher social class. So the Roman commander's response revealed his surprise. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't you just that? You're, just, you're not just a rabble rouser? I mean, who are you? The next thing we see is that Paul, it says Paul motioned to the crowd and they all went quiet. And that seems a little unusual unless you know, again, this is hidden in our English translation, unless you know that Paul made a gesture. It was an orator's gesture that was instantly recognizable in that culture. It basically communicated, I'm a public speaker, I know how to do this, and I have something I need to say. So Paul showed what we might call, today we might call media savvy. He knew the media and he knew how to use it in order to have influence. Next it says it spoke to the crowd in Aramaic. He spoke to the crowd in Aramaic even though he had just spoken in Greek to the commander. Again, this was Paul being what we might call media savvy. Speaking Aramaic showed that he was a Jew and, and, that, and that he was, as he was speaking to the crowd of Jews, it immediately put them on equal terms. You see, in, in the day and age, Greek was what we might call the lingua franca, the, the common language, the trade language of the day. That's why Paul could speak to the Roman commander. But for the Jews, it was different. The Jews for generations had been spread around the empire. They spoke a lot of different languages. But whenever they got together, their lingua franca, their common language was Aramaic. It was part of them hanging on to their identity as God's chosen people. So speaking Aramaic was a brilliant move by Paul that got everybody's attention and they immediately calmed down. So think about it. In a matter of just a few seconds, Paul goes from being a victim in this situation, just about killed by one group of people, about to be beaten by another group, the group of soldiers. He immediately goes from being a victim to being the center of attention in that situation. Do you understand what cool-headedness that took? <laughs> Do you understand how internally calm and tremendously present-minded he had to be? Instead of panicking, he turned toward the danger with courage. His mind and his heart were now open and available to speak with love and compassion and commitment and conviction to that group of people. Where does such courage come from? 
How does one refuse to give in to the panic? Because the panic's automatic, right? We all are going to feel it when we encounter danger. How do we refuse to give in to the panic and instead act with love and conviction? Well, this story gives us a couple of clues about how Paul was able to act with courage. But before I get to that, I just want to make sure we're on the same page about this topic of courage. Just what is courage? And the best definition I've ever come across, and I've never forgotten it, is it comes from an early 20th century English author by the name of G.K. Chesterton. It's in his seminal book called Orthodoxy. This is his definition. Courage is almost a It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. A strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. You see, courage reaches for life at its best. Courage drives us to live life to the fullest. But the challenge is, that means taking risks. That means making yourself vulnerable. That means even exposing yourself to harm and to hurt. It's a paradox. You cannot escape the tension between the two. If you really want to live, you need to be ready to die. That takes courage. So again, I ask, where did Paul get this courage? And I think as we look at the next, what we have available in the next part of the scripture where Paul tells his story, we see two things in particular that I'd like to highlight of where Paul got his courage. This is how I want to put it. It says, Paul looked, learned to look away from himself with humility and he learned to look towards something else with home, hope. He learned to look away from himself with humility and he learned to look to something else with hope. So I want to pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 22 where we left off in verse 3. In verse 3 through 21 we see Paul telling his, his story of, encouraging, of encountering Jesus. It's a story that we first read back in chapter 9 and we're going to hear several more times through the rest of the book. This is the story about how Jesus rescued him and it was, it, it's absolutely foundational for Paul's courage. In particular, I want to emphasize in how he tells this story this time, I want to, I want to emphasize how it, he, he reveals his credentials for what he is doing and, and how he's able to do so with humility. And so I, I want to look beginning at the speech and then I want to look at the end of the speech to see this. In, first of all, in verses 3 through 5, I want to send, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Now, this may not mean anything to us, but this is the one of the two main Jewish teachers. I mean, this is like a stamp of approval to anybody who knows. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. I persecuted the followers of the way, and those were the followers of Jesus, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so, for I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished." Now here he's telling his story in a slightly different way to emphasize in the beginning here his credentials. And these were credentials that would have seriously impressed his audience. <laughs> in our day, 
This is what presidential hopefuls do. You know, we're in presidential, we're in election season. And when presidential hopefuls, when they first announce their candidacy, what they do is they tell their story in a way that highlights their credentials and impresses us as Americans that, that we might see them as capable of leading our country. This is what Paul is doing. And notice that Paul doesn't shy away from his credentials. No, he's ready to compare them with anyone in the crowd. Oh, you think you're zealous right now? Oh, you think you're concerned with purity and cleanliness? Oh, you want to you wanna make sure everybody's obeying the law to, the, to, to fully? Oh. Oh, you think you're, you're all that. Well, I'm all that, and, I'm, and I'm, I'll take all of that. I'll raise you. In fact, I'm going to go all in with my credentials. See, Paul didn't shy away from his strengths. He didn't shy away from his qualities. But here's the deal. He also didn't put his stock in them. And then you get down to verse 16. And this is where Paul culminates the story. This is the pinnacle of his story, where he received the gospel through Ananias. Or, as Pastor Taylor would say, Aninius. So verse 16 says, Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you might want to just read, you just read right past that because you know what baptism means. You know that somebody is baptism to show and to illustrate what Jesus has done on their behalf. When, they, when, you put, when you put your trust in the name of Jesus, he comes, he cleanses you from your sins and he, you are forgiven. That's what baptism represents. Interestingly, to the Jewish audience that Paul had, they would have understood baptism also as a cleansing and so that a person may be acceptable to God. But there's a big difference. The Jews in Jesus' day only baptized Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism because Jews looked down on Gentiles, considering them unclean and unholy. So Paul, and again, this is Paul brilliantly doing so. Through his story, he basically says, we who are born Jews, we who are zealous for obeying the law of God are just as unclean, just as defiled as an unclean pagan, Gentile, unbeliever. Now, this this would have stunned his audiences. (laughs) This, 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 would have, this idea that a Jew, somebody born a Jew, or even more so somebody following a strict path of obedience and following the Jewish law that they would need to be baptized would have been utterly shocking. So when we put verses 3 through 5 and verse 16 together, we hear Paul communicating the essence of the gospel. This is the gospel. No one, no one is good enough on their own. All are sinful and broken beyond repair. And yet through Jesus, all can be welcomed into the presence of God and loved more than they can know. Putting your trust in Jesus means holding firmly to two essential truths. On the one hand, I am am broken beyond my own repair, my own ability to save myself. And on the other hand, I'm clinging to the fact that I am loved and accepted by the God of the universe through Jesus. The gospel holds those two truths in tension. And by holding on to the gospel, we are freed from two polar opposite extremes that we need to be rescued from. Uh, On the one hand, there are some of us who may think that we are superior to others because of our credentials. The gospel rescues from that. But also there are others of us who think, no, we are broken 
beyond our ability to be accepted by God. And the gospel says, no, holds those things together. Both of them are, both those extremes of superior based on credentials or inferior based on brokenness, both are equally wrong, equally harmful, equally self-absorbed. The gospel protects us from both extremes. The, the gospel humbles your ego from its grandiose, notion, grandiose notions and it gives the, what your soul desires more than anything else, which is love and acceptance. It provides both. Now, we need to understand this because, because it, we need to, courage requires that we, that we look away from ourselves. We need to be able to do that. This means absolutely everything when it comes to courage because courage is only possible when we focus away from ourselves. We need to understand this because we often misunderstand the connection between courage and fear or panic. When it comes to fear, we have two equally dangerous approaches that both involve looking at yourself. The first response is what we might call overfear. And overfear sounds like Oh my goodness, there's a danger here. I'm in danger here. I I may get hurt. I may even be killed here. (gasps) Now, overfear causes us to want to hide and stay safe and protect ourselves instead of moving into the lives of others with courage. The other response is equally harmful. It's what we might call underfear. Underfear basically sounds like I can do anything I set my mind to. This is captured well in the famous William Ernest Henley poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Under fear leads to a sense of overconfidence, more bravado than courage. Both of them involve looking to yourself, which means both of them make you vulnerable to panic, whether panic starts within you or panic is swirling around you. And Paul shows this how humility disarms panic. So the first aspect of courage that we learned from Paul is the ability to look away from yourself with humility. But that's still not enough. Paul demonstrates also how you look to something else for hope. And in particular with Paul, he looked to the hope in the resurrected Jesus. As Paul shared his story, it, 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 the pinnacle is when he encountered the person of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And when Paul understood that, that Jesus was alive, that he was resurrected from the dead, he, there could be no greater hope. This, this world could provide no greater hope than that. Because that was true, he found that death no longer ruled him. And the same thing can be true for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus One day we will be raised from the dead. One day all this will be made new. One day there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death. This provides astonishing hope because our number one enemy, death, is defeated. Our number one fear, death, is swallowed up. Paul summarized how he lived with his hope. He wrote about it at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, he writes this. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far 
better. He's actually torn between living here and the opportunity to live for Christ, which is great. Or to be, if to be departed, to be with Christ would be even better. He's wrestling with it. Now, it's easy for us to say to live as Christ when living costs us little and death seems far away. But in the face of a contagion, in the face of a pandemic, where we or somebody we love whose lives may be in danger, that's a whole other thing. Paul is not saying death is better. It's a horror. It's an enemy to be hated, no doubt. But with Christ, death becomes a doorway into a thoroughly satisfying, utterly safe presence of Jesus forever. Death is gain, not because the experience of death is any less likely or any less miserable, but because of what death gives us. Or even better, who death gives us. My friends, when we understand that the primary barrier to courage is a fear of death, resurrection changes everything. Resurrection isn't exclusively about what happens when we die. Resurrection motivates us here on earth to take risks. And in so doing, we get to do things and go places we never imagined possible because the fear of death is diminished. And remember, courage, it's a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. So what does that mean for us today? Well, the other thing we need to know about courage uh, is that it grows through training and use. It's like a muscle in that respect. Like I said at the beginning, we don't know whether we'll ever have the courage when we need it. You know, will I have the courage to run into a burning building to save a life? I won't know if I have that courage until I'm actually there and I need it. But what we can do is we can train that panic part of our body, that God-designed response to danger. We can train it by daily facing smaller fears so that when we get to a place where we need a larger fear, we're ready to go. And in this season, we have the opportunity to do that. You know, in the video that ran before this message, we saw Operation Love Your Neighbor. And so maybe you today, maybe you are withdrawn in the house. I mean, we're all practicing social distancing, but some of us have pulled back, you know, kind of buttoned down the hatches and are all about staying safe personally. Maybe for us, courage is to press out. Maybe for you right now, you need to go to isunrise.com. You need to scroll down. You need to find the Give Help button. Click on it. Give us your information. Join the Project Love Your Neighbor team because you have the opportunity to take care of those in the world around us who are even more vulnerable than we are. Yes, that will require courage on our part because we have to give up a little bit of our safety. Maybe that's what you need to do right now. I mean, like right now. I mean, like turn me off. I don't have anything more important to say. Go right now. Click the button. Take a step of courage. Or maybe for you, a step of courage is to also go to isunrise.com, but you need to click on the get help button. You need to admit that you're lonely right now. You need to admit that you have some needs that you can't meet on your own. That also takes courage because you're vulnerable in asking for help. But I invite you to take that step. Maybe you recognize in the season as, as you maybe extra time to reflect or maybe as you're in relationship with others, there are, you, know that, you know there are some relationships that, that are unreconciled. You know you have some old hurts, some old bitterness maybe towards somebody and a step of courage for you to be to reach out to that person, to offer forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. That too would take courage. 
maybe in this coronavirus season, what really has you kind of hunkered down in a sense of panic is the economic part of it. Maybe you see kind of a foreboding about what might be around the corner economically. Maybe you've lost your job already. Maybe your job is in jeopardy. Maybe you're wondering how, how this is going to affect my standard of living. How is this going to affect my ability to, to take care of my family? For you, a step of faith would be to give money away. You need to go to iSunrise.com. You need to click the, the, the Give Online button. But it's not just about sunrise. It's not about us needing the money. God's got us. This is about you taking a step of courage, you trusting God's provision while you're worried about yourself. That would take courage. And lastly, maybe, maybe you've built a relationship with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend over maybe months or years, but you've wanted to introduce them to Jesus, but you're a little bit afraid of how they might respond. Maybe you, in this season, could reach out and say, can I tell you about where I get hope? Can I tell you about a hope that is beyond the situation that I have? Because Jesus lives. Jesus really rose from the dead. He died for your sins and mine, but he's alive today, offering us a greater hope. Maybe that would be a step of courage for you. Make no mistake, all those things take courage. And they also grow courage. Would you pray with me? Jesus, believing that you really did rise from the dead, that you are our greatest hope because you, you are alive today. You are ruling. Trust in you for that. We can put our hope in you for that. And would you find us, as we put our hope in you, would you find us willing to act in small courage, facing our small fears every day, trusting you, putting our hope in you. And for anyone here listening online today who hasn't put your trust in Jesus, I invite you to do so today. A greater hope is available, but it does cost, it does mean taking a look away from yourself with humility. And if you want to do that today, it's a simple act of just saying, Jesus, I believe you're alive. Jesus, I want to put my trust in you. Would you come and rescue me from my brokenness? Rescue me from my sin. I put my trust in you. I want that love and acceptance that you offer. And just that act of submission, that act of prayer right now, invites you into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. If you did so, if you pray that prayer right now, I invite you to let us know on, on, there on Facebook. Let us know by, by filling out the connection card. We would love to connect with you. All these things we pray, believing in the name of